0: Evening Dan.
1: Evening pal, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you doing? All okay. We're we're officially in the hiatus, aren't we? <laughs>
0: yeah. I, it's just it's kind of bonkers just how um, how sh- obviously short the gap is. It's I just you know obviously a lot has been said about the timing of this World Cup and everything else about it as well. Um, and yeah, just the one week between the season pausing and and football. A World Cup starting is just not right. It's just it's very difficult to, uh, yeah, to give yourself get yourself into a World Cup headspace if that is such a thing. I was listening to um, another football podcast as well, and
1: um, and they were all talking actually, which was quite interesting about the fact that you know, in a way, what happens with um, World Cups and Euros is you get this excess demand, don't you? Because the season finishes, you have a few weeks off, everything sort of goes into a little bit of a lull you start missing football again and then the best players from across the world or Europe then effectively get going again for some tournament um, and there's two two or three games a day for the first couple of weeks as well. I almost feel like you don't have that um, little period of... Wanting, or or rather, having that break from football before then you effectively start again. And that can, you know, be interesting to see how that plays out in a way, because, you know, being able to differentiate
0: the club and international games, sometimes you you need that little bit of space. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing as well is you've got four games a day then during the World Cup, which is going to be, it's a lot. I think there's been the occasional day in the past where you've had four days, four games um, in a day, um, or at least, you know, four time slots in a day. Um, And it's, it's pretty. Yeah, it just becomes quite hard to, to kind of follow and stay on top of it. But yeah, we, we can we can dive into World Cup on the back back after this. So what and, and kind of mirror what's happening and move from club to international. So to start with club, um, there was obviously the big news last week around Liverpool uh, reportedly being up for sale. Um, so yeah, talk us through where you know things are reportedly at in the in the process and what you know different all the different parties involved will be considering thinking about right now. Well, it's a it's a fascinating one, isn't it? Because Uh, Yeah, last
1: week, I think it was David Ornstein in Athletic broke the story that um, FSG had put um, Liverpool up for sale. You then had the um, FSG uh, press release, which more or less said that they were potentially looking for new shareholders. That obviously was done to a degree, I guess, to hedge bets, uh, which is, um, it might well be just like um, FSG had previously done, um, at least in relation to um, the... Uh, investment that they'd already taken from Redbird, I think it was, wasn't it, um, that uh, that they were going to at least um, accept sort of some minority shareholdings or some type of dilution of their um, total um, ownership. Um, but then obviously, on the flip side, it looked like there was obviously the possibility, depending on valuation, we could talk about that briefly as well, of um, a full sale, which would obviously raise a huge amount of money. Um, and so where are we at? Um, uh, b- banks are reported to have been um, engaged on the on the sell side. Um, there's decks that are reportedly have um, uh, been drafted and uh, put before potential buyers. And then I think you then always get that um, phase where, Every man and his or her dog is uh, potentially reported to be interested in Liverpool. But again, I think we'll uh, be interested to dive into a little bit of the detail because um, from a lot of the deals that, that we've worked on in the past, a lot of it always comes down to, to valuation. And obviously, we don't need to necessarily talk about Liverpool in a, in a vacuum. We've seen over the summer the huge sums that, that Chelsea have, um being sold for, reported to be sold for. And I'd just be fascinated in your general view um as well as any particular specifics on um you know how how to go about valuing a, a football club and then a Premier League football club and then a Premier League club that plays um in the Champions League and one that over the last period of time has been incredibly successful both on and off the pitch and um whether now that's the, the time for um um some new money to come in.
0: Yeah, so I think um on football clubs, I think the first thing to say is that most of the ways that football clubs are evaluated, or at least the kind of most common practice way of evaluating valuations of football clubs is looking at a revenue multiple. Um, In in other industries, you'd be looking at EBITDA multiples or other types of multiples, but a lot of football clubs are loss-making, which means it's it's difficult to um, kind of replicate what happens in in a lot of other industries. So when when you look at multiples, they tend to start at kind of 1.2, 1.3 for clubs that are pretty commonplace if that's the right word so clubs in league one league two um national league um generally kind of between 1.3 and, and 2 uh, as a multiple of a revenue and when you talk about these clubs having revenues of um you know under 10 million um often under 5 million you know you're not talking big valuations uh, but the multiples tend to go up um as you get into i guess that Verified air, thin atmosphere of, of clubs where there aren't that many of them in the world, um, and, and that's what drives a, a big premium on price. So Chelsea uh, reports valuation of about two and a half uh, billion uh, pounds in in um, uh, in May uh, when when they were sold. Uh, City Football Group when lake invested, and it is different for minority investment. You, um, you tend to see a bit more of a premium uh, on valuations paid. Um, you're talking about a kind of close to four billion valuation. Uh, going back a little bit to Arsenal um, in, in 2018 with Stan Kroenke's takeover is about a two billion valuation. So that all that will kind of set, will kind of begin to calibrate what Liverpool's valuation is. Um, there was obviously the Redbird investment um, as well, which put the club at over five billion. So all those things will will kind of come together and, and it isn't a huge amount of data points, but they will be quite powerful data points when it comes to um, the valuation of, of the club and, uh, I think obviously a lot's been said about why this is potentially a good time for, for FSG to, to sell up. Um, and yeah, I, I suspect, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Probably, I'm sure to think that there, there wouldn't be a bigger takeover yet in, in English football. Um, and yeah, certainly a lot of, um, I imagine there'll be quite a few interesting parties.
1: I think the other interesting thing as well, just generally, um, because we've talked about it at various times, is, you know, when you're talking about club valuation, I think some of the things that I'm always fascinated about are, and let's just take it that um, it's it's a full takeover, is um, broadcasting rights, sort of crystal ball thinking as to two years in the future, five years in the future, 10 years in the future. And we've seen with at least the rollover of the, the domestic deal that that's another five billion from Sky. Amazon and BT for the next for the, for the following three years, which must give a huge amount of confidence to the Premier League, but also obviously to each individual clubs that if they're doing pretty well, you know, they're probably earning just from central distributions, the best part of £120, £130 million, pounds, never mind for the champions, which could be significantly more up of uh, £150 uh, million pounds plus. And then you have, I guess, which is the double-edged sword of sort of squad valuations where you know, I was seeing some recent stats about how valuable Man City's squad was or otherwise approaching the billion I could be correct well, I'm making them wrong in the billion pound category or otherwise and and how much actually um, you know the valuation of the club goes towards uh, the value of the players the flip side obviously is that there's very large liabilities for the players by way of salary and bonuses and everything else that comes with it you know part of that revenue multiple like you're talking about at the more common end of the 1.3 to, to 2 mark how does that revenue multiple then trigger us depending on the scarcity of the Potential club and the, the, the size and scale of the club accordingly.
0: Yeah, so the, those clubs that I mentioned, Arsenal, City, Chelsea, is kind of in the region of five, six, seven um, revenue multiples. And, and what Liverpool's revenue, I haven't got it in front of me, above the top of my head, it's kind of four, 50, 500 million um, pounds. So again, that's taking you in the region of kind of the the four billion um, ish mark. But again, it might, it might be high. And it all comes down to, as you say, the interpretation of what is the commercial growth potential with Liverpool and the biggest driver has historically been broadcast rights and has been the biggest motivator to invest in English football because a lot of people have seen well you know if you look at all the kind of sports around the world which broadcast rights have grown the most in the last 15 years or so and the Premier League has been pretty much close to number one certainly um, and then when you account for the fact of valuations tend to be lower than in US sports because you've got relegation and inefficiencies and so on within within English football, all those things have kind of made it quite attractive to to American investors. So um, yeah, I think yeah the assessment will be where where Liverpool can get to. They're obviously they're expanding the stadium. They've obviously got an incredible brand. Um, you know, in, in some respects, some might argue kind of a, a bigger brand than than Man United, who obviously are the, the highest well, have historically been the highest earning um, English club. I think Man City overtook them recently. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that will all kind of um, be be kind of thrown into the mix. Uh, what I want to ask you is like, it's kind of what what the process is now. So all the different parties, like what would, what is the DD, how does the DD process kick off? Well, how, do, how do people, how do kind of buyers get involved in, in this process now for Liverpool? It's a great one. And I think you can
1: probably take some, um... Uh, some of the modeling from the the Chelsea deal, even though that was on a much sort of quicker expedited process over the summer, but you know I think there's going to be quite a strong filtering process which is going to probably be um, uh, depending on whether it's minority, majority, full full takeover, et cetera, that demonstrating proof of funds is going to be pretty um, elementary. And, and proof of funds, you know, you hear these sort of phrases all the time, is more, more or less trying to demonstrate that there's a significant amount of money, which is probably going to have to be in the billions in... Um, effectively liquid states to be able to um to purchase um the club if a full takeover happens and what i guess then will probably happen is those those clubs consortia probably because we're talking billions of pounds is going to be significant to to try and um get get such money into the liquid form um to be able to go ahead is then then that that list will be whittled down pretty quickly um in truth and i think probably what will be happening at the same time or likely at some point is then um, you always have, again, the same things to do with the owners and directors test, which um, uh, any club that's looking to be sold will have to ensure that um, potential purchases would um, would fit that criteria. And we've seen, obviously, the, the sort of controversy around the Newcastle takeover previously and, and others and whether the owners and directors test is going to be strengthened on the basis of, you know, we've talked about the independent regulator, um, UK independent regulator, and whether they're going to have such powers in the future. Um, and then after that, um, it's likely to be what's called a data room, which would be um, uh, which would to be constructed and that data room would be for the due diligence exercise that would be to ensure that you know anyone that's going to spend potentially billions of pounds on Liverpool will have a very clear and strong idea about um, all of the, the contracts that are in place with the players with brands with sponsors with um, third parties um, understand obviously the the liabilities and there would be several hundred millions of pounds worth of liabilities on an annual basis for a, for a club like Liverpool as well um, and you need to understand all the disputes and uh, all the issues which might effectively cost um, um, additional monies over the period of time, maybe tax issues as well. So that then effectively a a DD report is is formed um, and the potential buyers at that point, and it might be more than one, you know, the shortlisted, um, would then enter into, um, you know, I I guess some type of either bidding race or otherwise. Um, And then at the end, you'd have a preferred bidder who would then Um, potentially then take forward um, the agreement which is the overarching agreement which is called the SPA um, which then forms the basis for how the the shares are going to be um, sold and the um, effectively the promises that the the sellers and the buyers will be undertaking to each other to to get the deal over the line but I think as uh, we talked about previously you know we we I was still shocked by the the how quickly the Chelsea deal got done. That's testament to, you know, lots of the lawyers that I work on the other side with in, in due course, actually, that did a fantastic job to get that done so quickly. Um, and that's testament to the, the great job that everybody did. And obviously the the need to get that deal done for lots of reasons, including governmental intervention that would, might have otherwise happened and, and Chelsea being, you know, in, in possible significant trouble if it didn't get done in that time frame. So, but, you know, this type of time frame for a Premier League deal, a club um, is you know, even if we find buyers in good time, you know, it can sometimes take six, seven, eight, nine months to be able to um, finalize um, a deal, even after a preferred bidder has been found. So this isn't going to be a, it's unlikely to be a quick process. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we haven't even haven't even decided on valuation and, uh, and understand actually, you know, based on that Chelsea benchmark where we're actually going to get to. So um, yeah, lots of, lots of interesting considerations, especially, you know, the timing of stuff now, um, just in the world cup period, um, you know, it's a fascinating time. Bearing in mind, also, I think that you know, I think it's fair to say that Liverpool have got a little bit of rebuilding to do. Um, you know, as Liverpool fan, with you know potentially additional midfielders to come in. Um, Klopp obviously still tied into the medium term, but it's not easy to find another Jurgen Klopp um, in due course as well. So, all of those considerations. Big spending potentially required in some positions but that's always the case I guess you know better than I when you know a club is happening I remember the, one of the first times we spoke Omar you did a brilliant presentation um, it was to do with you know squad replenishment needing to take place and even though it looked like you know the club was in a you, you gave these examples of a few different clubs maybe you can talk about it briefly but you know one club needing quite a regeneration of their squad another not but one being valued a lot higher than the other potentially so there's all of those nuances which go into things.
0: Yeah, poor old Fulham and Shire can I always use that as my example of, of a club that was in a lot more strife than uh, the league table would suggest. Um, but yeah, it's interesting on Liverpool. I think yeah, World Cup. You know, you've got a wherever six six week period or so, five week period or so, um, where Liverpool's league position won't be changing. They'll still be in the second round of the Champions League and, and so on. You know, football's very emotive, reactive, and, and actually there are big cliff edges. You know, if Liverpool don't make the Champions League at the end of this season, that has implications around, you know, for a club that's made it every pretty much since Klopp took over, um, you know, suddenly not, throws in more doubt about um, the long-term health of the club. So that will all um, come into consideration. Uh, Should we pivot
1: to, to World Cup? I was going to actually. So I saw... Um, you know, can take it whichever direction you want, but I saw some great content by um, you guys, the 21st group on, um, I'm not even how to sure to describe it in terms of infographics, but there was a great one about, I think it was uh, international squad strength, more or less, and all of these little colorful mountains in a way. Um, so I'm not sure if you're able to able to even describe it, obviously better than I've just um, savaged your uh, infographics, but um, yeah, it'd be great to hear some of your insights on um, uh, favorites people to work out will look out for teams to look out for
0: and where where the model stands yeah absolutely so yeah that that graphic you refer to is from my colleague Aurel, um who um yeah i'll I'll often retweet you can find it on my on my timeline um i I suppose the first thing to note is like just how how do you predict the world cup and and how do you think about um the world cup and it's it's a challenge because national teams don't play many games i think they play what is it off the top of my head kind of between ten or twelve and sixteen games a year, it's really not that many, um, and so that obviously has has an impact. You know, if, if you're only looking, you know, that that's as many games as a Premier League team has played so far this season, and and actually you're not 100 percent certain about how good each Premier League team is. You know, if you think about a team like like Spurs, you don't, you don't really have a true sense of how you know how good they really are this season. Plenty others, well, Arsenal top of the league, but can they sustain it and, and so on? So you know, you're talking about these teams not having played a lot of football. Um, and having played it over a long period of time, so you don't get a lot of confidence in it. Um, so you can still pick up some signal from it, and, and our models um, essentially account for team performance in um, um, in kind of recent uh, recent games. Um, but but we also account for kind of squad quality and squad depth, um, and that's what um, aurel was looking at. And and essentially, if you look at the squads on paper, um, Brazil, as they often do, looks looks the strongest. And then when you couple that with results as well, Brazil looks very strong, and there are Favorites of the tournament. So we've got them as 22% chance of, of lifting the trophy, which um, is is relatively short for a World Cup. Um, you know, World Cups are um, you know pretty evenly spread. You've got 32 teams, there's always a chance for, for an upset. Uh, England have a good score on paper, but their results have been pretty shocking in, in the last um, particularly kind of six to 12 months. Uh, and that downgrades them. So we've got England as, as fifth favourites, 10 chance of, of lifting the trophy, which I think is is not far off where the betting markets are as well. And actually, England's group is somewhat tricky like we still expect them to make the last 16 but usa iran um wales are all uh pretty much kind of premier league quality teams um in, in our model maybe um iran and wales kind of top of the championship and uh, probably premier league level um team. so um it, it, it will be a little bit tricky for england to, to navigate um the group um and then there's the other usual contenders i think the other team that a lot of people are talking about and I hadn't realised this uh, on an incredible unbeaten run is Argentina, um, who we've got as fourth favourites, um, 11%, um, you know, a decent group. They've got Poland, uh, they've got Saudi Arabia and Mexico, so they should get out of that group um, and be alongside the, the France group so they can avoid um, France and probably play Denmark in the second round. That will be um, tricky, but, you know, not, not a terrible draw. Um, so, yeah, Argentina, I guess the, the team that's done poorly at recent World Cups might do well in this one. Uh, but I, I don't know whether to look at it optimistically or pessimistically. You know, it's, it's usual suspects in, in all our favourites are Brazil, France, Germany, Argentina, England, Portugal, Netherlands, uh, Spain, Belgium. Um, actually, really, it's Spain who are the last one of, of having a, a reasonable chance of winning the competition. Once you go Belgium, Denmark down, it becomes a bit more a bit more evenly spread. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard. Like using data to forecast national teams results is hard. Our data science team has done an amazing job, I think, of at predicting outcomes but the fact is that the favourites are uh, or it looks like lost internet uh, I can still hear you okay I you think. can still hear me oh, alright okay. I got a notification there saying I was but yeah the fact that the favourites are only kind of um, you know low probability to, to win the World Cup just I guess is part of the appeal of the world Cup: unpredictable unpredictable tournament on the whole
1: I might just ask then on um, uh, firstly on England and then secondly on potentially the players that that aren't around as well but um, for the model as well has there been I'm going to ask you a very awkward question now as well maybe something you might not be able to uh, know but a, a real particular injury which has um, dropped percentages for any particular team I'm just thinking for example Pogba and Kante for example that aren't around for for France or Werner that's not around for um Germany or even like you know James and Chilwell that aren't around for for England and and others Jota and Wijnaldum that aren't you sort of I'm just fascinated in the the injury side of things at the moment because right obviously in the midst of a season quite a few players out injured whether then there's the potential for actually injury more more injuries in the group phase or otherwise or as the as things progress simply because of player load etc um has that obviously, I know you factor that in quite considerably into those projections, but do you think it's going to be possibly more so in this World Cup because of you know that when Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, at least in the Premier League? And I'm sure it's been the case of the league's um, start to the season.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, I guess a bit of a double edged um, this tournament because the players are probably coming in fitter than they've ever been to a World Cup or certainly less tired. Um, but as you say, that there have been injuries and a lack of lead up time to a World Cup, as we discussed, it's kind of crazy, it means any small niggle rule that I think, is, I think I saw before this that Mane is going to miss Senegal's first few games, which is ambiguous because they might only play three games, right? So, um, when, we've, um, when we've done the modelling, essentially, what you see is that injuries to the top teams matter, but they're not catastrophic. Um, you know, they're not... Um, you know, they, they, they make a, a, sm- a relatively small difference to the team's overall chances of, of winning the tournament. They matter a lot to Senegal and South Korea and whoever else has got a star player in their teams. So Poland would be maybe another one, Lewandowski. Um, so I think, uh, and I haven't got the numbers to hand, but but having um, asked our data scientists about this before, a, a career losing son um, from the group stages would would hit their qualification chances by about five percentage points. So at the moment we've got them about twenty five percent to make the the last sixteen. That would fall to about twenty percent to make the last sixteen. So. It's it's you know relatively significant, but it's not enormous. And I think the point is that you know these group stages can be quite random. It's three games that we saw at the last World Cup. It's South Korea's own group with with Mexico and Sweden. It, it didn't go according to plan at all. Um, and you know Sweden, you really wouldn't have fancied at the last World Cup if you looked at their squad on paper. It turned out to be really really effective. So yeah, individual players um, doesn't it has an impact, but I think you can overstate it and you end up often after the tournament post rationalizing. Um, that the absence the impact of the absence of, of individual players and, and by the same token as well you, you tend to overestimate the impact that any one player can have in a positive sense so the classic example would be England at the last Euros with Jack Relish, who um, you know <laughs> I remember when his face came on screen in the stadium at Wembley you know that there was kind of cheers and, and whoops and, and so on but you know when he played he played well but he wasn't he didn't revolutionize England and turn England into world beaters Um, so yeah, I think there's there's a tendency to overreact on both sides of the importance of players, and particularly on national teams. They they, they need you know coaches get so little time to work on them. It's, it's often, I guess, the team that's the least uncohesive, if if that is a word, um, that makes it through. Um, but a little nugget on on absentee players. We uh, we pulled together a starting eleven of the best players who are not at the World Cup. Um, so it's O'Black and Goal, Alaba and Gomez, uh, defence uh, centre backs, Robertson left back, DiLorenzo right back, Barella, Kante, Parejo uh, in midfield, uh, Salah, Holland and, and Diaz up front. Uh, so three Liverpool players in, in that team. Um, and we, well, the way we did it is it's a bit of a, it's difficult to exactly project how well a team would do, obviously, and this is kind of fantasy, um, f- fantasy football realms. But if you replace them for the weakest teams in the group, so you might end up with a slightly tougher draw. We give them about a four percent chance of winning the World Cup, so they'd be about eighth or ninth favourite for the World Cup. Which, um, yeah, shows. I guess the quality that's missing it going to be about the quality of Belgium to, to win the World Cup. Um, so, yeah, it's a shame to be missing some of those players, but um, yeah, they, uh, for any given team, as I say, it's not a huge, enormous loss. I suppose now's the time for me to to pick the the Dan G model. Where where's where's your money on uh, during the World Cup? I love how you completely put me on the spot. I mean, <laughs> I think
1: um, uh, the truth is. I'm still really quite surprised at the sort of negativity around uh, England and, and Southgate. I think, um, like we've talked about previously, sort of Nations League obviously it wasn't wasn't a great run, and maybe there's a few of our defenders that aren't on aren't in great form at the moment. But I just I just seem to think and I'm probably going to be proven completely wrong that you know the track record of um, Southgate over the last two major championships has been incredibly impressive a massive outlier compared to where england usually are and its basis has been on um sound defense and um you know individuals that can do um pretty good things in the last um third on a variety of occasions and you know i think I was thinking you know how important for example Kane is to England really um, as, a, as a finisher we don't really have someone in the same calibre to be able to take half chances as Kane would potentially do and even for example even though Sterling hasn't been on incredible fire with Chelsea how important he is in the England system um, so you know I, I don't think England will win it um, who, who knows I, you know the romantic in me would love someone like you know Argentina and Messi to do it um, simply because it's the one thing he hasn't done and to do that quite close to the end of his career um and watch him do something like that would be you know absolutely spectacular um but in the same way i'm just really sad in a way just not see harland and salah and even zlatan or odegaard and people like that in the um, in the world cup Some of you know, the best players in world football at the moment that, that aren't able to grace us but yeah where, where's without obviously uh too
0: much are you still thinking it's um it's brazil yeah i i think um the, the model likes them um and uh, to be honest, I'm with you on, on Argentina. I would absolutely love um Argentina and Messi to, to, to the World Cup. I think that'd be um great story for him. So there there'd be it's unusual, I suppose, for England fans to kind of come out and support Argentina. But so I think you know both of us love Messi, and I, I think it'd be great to see him win it. So yeah, if I if I had to um I think I think if there's um if I had to put money on anyone um then it may maybe Argentina, because they've performed so well in um, in recent years, and that kind of takes both the uh, the heart and and the head together then to project the World Cup
1: Well the good news is Omar as well we've um, I know Jordan is an avid listener of maybe you if not me but um, yeah Jordan's going to be with us in a few weeks to to talk on some um, additional topics so uh, yeah I'm looking forward to um, someone else um, explaining how the football industry works as well which is going to be super news and uh, meantime thanks for uh, chatting as always
0: Absolutely All right. cheers then
1: Take care Thanks for listening you can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at FootballLaw, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Done Deal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by Thirteen, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.